bum bum bottom 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 bum
and, and it's so funny the way he phrases that about, um, you know, shouting it into the podcast and all he had was his dog on his dog walk to talk to. We've all been there, right? We've all been listening to podcasts and going like, what are these idiots talking about? <laughs> uh, but little did I ever think that the guy shouting at us would be Jeff Parker, the writer of Future Quest and Aquaman and, uh, uh, you know, Agents of Atla uh, uh, Atlas. Agents of Atlas. Ah, I can't speak today. You did say it right the first time. I did? Okay, good. Whew. You should um, trust yourself. I thank you, Lisa. But yeah, so that's that's a trip. You know, much love to Jeff Parker as well for taking the time to listen to us. It's an honor to know that you uh, uh, lended your ears to our And your voices. dog's ears. And your dog's ears. Yes, yes, yes. All right, so there you have it. Um, Lisa and I went and saw uh, Spider-Man Far From Home this past weekend, and I think it's say that we both enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Mysterio, oh, God. Uh, no spoilers, no spoilers, but I really enjoyed Jake Gyllenhaal and their interpretation of Mysterio in the MCU. I think it's one of the best uh, additions that they've, they've, they've done in recent years. Oh gosh, it's hard to talk about without spoiling. Shut up, Brad, move on. Uh, but to say that um, that movie re-energized our enthusiasm for Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson is an understatement. I think we've been gearing up to this month's of worth of episodes for a long time. We've been talking a lot in the periphery about Peter Parker and MJ, and we've just been waiting for the release of this movie so we could actually tie it into this series. And I'm, I'm excited. Are you excited to talk Peter Parker and MJ? Absolutely. Peter Parker and MJ played a huge role in our actual relationship and um, one of our first movie dates was Spider-Man. Not, not one of ours. It was our, our first. Our very first movie date? Yeah. Oh, man, how the time flies. <laughs> our, fir our first movie date was to Spider-Man 3. That classic. The, from the Sam Raimi spin. Yep. And uh, Brad pretended that he hadn't seen it before so that he could watch a Spider-Man movie with a girl. Yep. And then I had to deal with the emotional complications of... Uh, this boy I'm on a date with really loves Spider-Man and this movie blows. <laughs> How honest will I be? And it turns out super honest because I got to be me. At the time, I was most excited about watching a Spider-Man movie with a girl that had never happened before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I couldn't make it work with Spider-Man 1 and 2, but here I am with 3 and I've got Lisa with me and I was super excited. I had seen it already with my friends Matt and Karen and we all hated it, but I didn't care. I wanted to watch it with a girl and here was Lisa. And, you know, yes, Spider-Man 3, not a great movie, maybe, I have warmed to it over the years, though, especially in light of the MCU's iteration of the character and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the animated right. film. So the, the pain has lessened. And I kind of like Spider-Man for what Spider-Man 3 for what it is. Uh, but this is not a Spider-Man 3 podcast. No, it is not. <laughs> it's a Peter Parker and MJ podcast. And I wanted to, you know, get into it. Lisa. Did Spider-Man 3 turn you into a Spider-Man and MJ fan? Are you a Spider-Man and MJ fan going into this series? I was introduced to Spider-Man and MJ through the Sam Raimi films, and I did enjoy them. I did like those movies. I did see the first one in the theater, I'm sure. Um, but I wouldn't say that I really became a Spider-Man and MJ fan until you recommended to me the Brian Michael Bendis Ultimate Spider Ultimate Spider Man run. Yeah. 
So good. Which I fell in love with. I just, like, he had the big, Brad had the big, thick volumes, which are now my volumes, because we are wed. And Talk I would, about my big, thick volumes, Lisa. <laughs> and he would lay his big, thick volumes onto my lap. <laughs> <laughs> and I would handle them with care. Yeah. Don't break that spine. Respect. <laughs> and I I fell in love with that story. And um, to me, that is still how I think of Spider-Man uh-huh. in my head. Uh-huh. I think of Spider-Man as a child, as a high school kid. Um, I think of Mary Jane as his high school sweetheart. And I really haven't lost myself in any other iterations of Spider-Man until Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I also continued to read into the Miles Morales run for as long as I found it interesting, and I did find it interesting, but I think that it was really Into the Spider-Verse that made me go, Miles Morales is rad. Yeah. I love him. And then uh, the Spider-Man Homecoming, the Spider-Man, the current MCU it's just so so wonderful. You dig on Tom Holland. Yeah, I think he's the perfect Spider-Man. He can pull off the the banter. He can pull off being a high schooler. Sure. You you have also seen the Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone versions yeah. where it was Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy. What I liked about that iteration, I thought that Andrew Garfield did look more like a teen and he could really pull off the kind of snarky dweeby thing. And their chemistry was really strong. Yeah, but I... Those movies are not good. Yeah, other than that, I (laughs) I didn't enjoy those movies. Well, I guess the reason I bring those films up is because that is a series that focuses on the relationship between Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy before she's killed. Mm -hmm. And you were introduced to the relationship of Peter Parker with Mary Jane first. So do you feel that Peter and MJ are the ultimate Spider-Man couple, or are you uh, inclined to focus on some of these other relationships that he's had in the past? Spider-Man and MJ is where it's at mm-hmm. romantically. I, But I do like the fact that, you know, he's dated. Like, he's a kid. Oh, he's yeah. dated he, around. As we see in Parallel Lives, he's really been around. <laughs> Um, but when I think of Gwen Stacy, I like to think of Spider Gwen Uh and the parallel universe where, uh, Peter Parker is the one that is killed because of his own hubris. Yeah. So good. I, yeah. If you haven't read Spider Gwen, read that. And that would be an interesting series to cover at some point too on this podcast. Uh, my first Spider-Man comic that I ever purchased was Amazing Spider-Man number 347 with the Eric Larson cover featuring Venom holding up the tattered skull of Spidey. Alas, poor Spider-Man. I knew him well. That issue published in May of 1991. Um, I would have been uh, 11 years old, just a few months before my 12th birthday. I was an immediate fan. I came in in the middle of that story arc and I was just like, this is such a cool character. I love him. And that wasn't a teenage Spider-Man. That was an adult married Spider-Man. He was married to Mary Jane. He should be married to Mary Jane. I was immediately connected with their relationship and I fell hard just like I did with Scott Summers and Jean Grey before them. Uh, I had a thing for comic book redheads. Uh, As most of you know, Spider-Man was created by Steve Ditko and Stan Lee and first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man, whoop, no, first appeared in Amazing Fantasy number 15, published in August of 1962. 
at this point in time, teenagers in comics were often relegated to the role of sidekicks, and seeing a 15-year-old Peter Parker swinging across the covers of his own book was a big deal. As Lee and Kirby did with the Fantastic Four and their other Marvel Universe characters in general, they put as much drama around Peter's relationship and his financial concerns as punching and web-slinging, right? And I find like the 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 superhero stuff, even within the MCU movies, is less interesting than the character work that we encounter in these stories. And that's what Marvel always did so well. Uh, you know, now, of course, talking about supporting characters, you know, next to Batman, no other comic book character has as rich a collection of friends. Uh, from bad guys to girlfriends, Spider-Man is surrounded by fascinating and compelling guest stars. Case in point. Mary Jane Watson, right? Um, MJ made her first appearance in The Amazing Spider-Man number 25, although in that issue there is this large plant blocking the reader's view of her. Peter is deathly afraid that Aunt May has set him up with a real monster of a woman, so he's always dodging her calls. Uh, Jokes on him, of course. MJ is a model in the making, and in issue number 42, published in November of 1966, written by Lee and drawn by John Romita, uh, Peter's final reveal knocked his socks off and you know there's mj standing in the doorway face it tiger you just hit the jackpot she knows what she's got i love that ego (laughs) of knowing like when this door opens he's the bell is going to be ringing in his head ding 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 yeah yeah i wish i had that confidence in in itself (laughs) same uh so lisa uh that's our couple for the month Uh, who is going to be our guru that will be helping us sift through the romantic woes of Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson? Our love guru for Peter Parker and Mary Jane will be Dr. Alexander Avila and his book, Love Types. Discover your romantic style and find your soulmate. All right. I came across this particular love expert because, as per usual, I was listening to a podcast. (laughs) So this time I was listening to the Minor Adventures podcast with Topher Grace. Appropriate enough. Venom. We were just talking about Spider-Man 3. Mm -hmm. And he was... um, A delight in it. He was. I'll Um, take Topher Grace over uh, Tom Hardy's Venom any day. Boom. Mic drop. Don't at me. At mouth No, don't. Don't at me. (laughs) On his podcast, Topher Grace takes friends of his, generally celebrity types, on minor adventures. So one of the episodes I really enjoyed is when he brought a real-life auctioneer in to teach Tignataro, a stand-up that I love. Yeah, so good. A member of Star Trek Discovery, member of the crew, um, to be an auctioneer. Or there was an episode with one of my other favorite comedians, Pete Holmes, uh, and they take the uh, linguistics coach from Game of Thrones and Pete Holmes and Topher Grace invent a language. So one of the episodes was with Chelsea Peretti, who you may know from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I, of course, know her as a stand-up comedian. Her special is on Netflix right now if you want to watch it. But uh, the expert they had in was Vicki Rothman, who is a career expert who uses the Myers-Briggs type indicator test. Brad. Yeah. When you were in high school. Yeah. Did your advisor ever make you take a Myers-Briggs test? No, but my dad did. Your dad did. Yeah. <laughs> Brad's dad, if you don't know, is a, like, 
he did military, and then after the military, he became a consultant. Yep. And he, like me, loves the Myers-Briggs type indicator test. Loves self-help in general. Yeah, yeah, so. And I resisted. <laughs> so Greg and I, we bond over our love <laughs> of self-help books and the Myers-Briggs type indicator test. And uh, that test is why I asked if you took it in high school was it's often used as a tool for determining what kind of careers path you might be compatible with. And I was required to take it when I was in high school. And uh, it was a Scantron test. You fill in the bubbles. And at the end of the test, you get your results back. And my result is... I am an INFP. That's what you were in high school or that's what you are today? Both. Oh, okay. So when I took it in high school, I got that INFP result and I read the character description of people with that type of personality. And for one reason or another, it really resonated with me. And I became fascinated with like, oh, well, I am a type of person and this type of person has this these types of options. Mm. I just I just found it fascinating, and I loved like exchanging with my friends. What's your Myers Briggs type? What's your Myers? And you found that helpful rather than constricting, because I always found I like that's why I resisted against that stuff. It's like don't tell me who I am. Book. To me, I felt by the results very seen because I did think that they sounded like me, but they. For as many times as I've taken that test, and I've taken it many times in many forms, it's never actually informed any of my decisions in my life. Uh-huh. But, for example, when I was listening, I think it must have been Topher Grace. Topher Grace ended up also being an INFP. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the expert was talking to him, uh, Vicki Rothman, and she's like, well, is your apartment... Di- are you, do you tend to be like a neat person or a messy person? And he's like, oh, I'm a messy person. And she's like, INFPs are like, they tend to get distracted because they try to act according to their ideals and they tend to leave loose ends. Yeah, that's you And also. that's me. I'm a complete <laughs> slob. And so that inspired me to take the test again. Uh-huh. And of course, I got the same result again. And I always felt that because I was always getting the same result, that... That lent credence to Mm. what this test is. Mm. Like, well, if the test really was meaningless, then it should change according to my moods. But the fact that I've taken this when I was 16, I took it when I was 26, I've taken it now at 35, like, and I always get the same results. So in, in researching for this particular podcast, I have come across, um, a couple of articles and ideas that go like, well, Myers-Briggs really is a pseudoscience. It, people don't u- really use it to make decisions. And it's all a bunch of hooey. And I was like, oh, no. Do <laughs> I, with all of my reasoning, uh, believe in hooey? And I don't put it past myself to believe in hooey. But I think over the course of this month as we're exploring um, Al- Alexander Avila's love types, which are based on the Myers-Briggs type okay. indicators, we can determine how much bullhooey the uh, Myers-Briggs type indicator test really is. All right. You know where I'm leaning. <laughs> I know. Hooey, I know. Hooey, hooey. Um, so long story short, for a couple of days, I was super re-obsessed with the Myers-Briggs result. And I was like, well, if 
People use Myers-Briggs as a tool to determine what careers they're suitable for. Do people ever try to use those same tools to determine what kind of people, what kind of personalities somebody else might be suitable for? Uh So long story short, Google, 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 I find this book. Dr. Alexander Avila has his PhD in clinical psychology and a doctorate in jurisprudence. Mm. Yeah. So he, uh, I guess, studies laws. I'm not sure what that means. I did. <laughs> I looked it up on Wikipedia and I, I read the thing and decided I didn't care. Law but, studier, got it. <laughs> he has been presenting his love type seminars throughout Southern California since 1993. And I got all of that information from the about the author because... Dr. Alexander Avila is our first love expert to not have a Wikipedia page. Oh, wow. All I right. Know. So Deep cuts today. Maybe we're putting this guy on the map, or maybe uh, or maybe he's not even notable enough to have a Wikipedia page. Well, <laughs> uh, we can decide that as we go. Hooey <laughs> <Do we> or not? <laughs> mm. It's always a bit of a gamble when you dive into a new book, but there was something that stood out to me just in the very first chapter that I'm like, this is perfect for Spider-Man and Mary Jane. Dr. Avila opens the first chapter by saying that dating is like a masquerade. We all go out with a mask of how we would like to present ourselves to the world, and we meet someone else with a mask of how they would like to seem. Sure. And then we fall in love with those masks, and then eventually the masks come off, and we find that we are not compatible with the person underneath. That idea is very appropriate for mm-hmm. Spider-Man mm-hmm. and Mary Jane. For sure. one, of, one of the first things that attracted Mary Jane to the idea of Spider-Man was that they were both wearing masks, presenting a facade behind which they hide their true identity. At least as it's told in parallel lives, which right. is a bit of a retcon. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk we'll about that. We'll get into that. Yeah. Stop bringing your, your nerd into my nerd. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Dr. Avila presents his love type system as a way to get behind the facade to the true person underneath. So you can determine with clarity that the person underneath is compatible with you. Sounds enticing, right? Well, he goes on. There are 16 love types based on the Myers-Briggs type indicator test. The book is presented in a way that walks through the love type system's steps. First, identifying the type that you are, then identifying the love types that you're compatible with, and when you find, through subtle questioning, someone with whom you're compatible and would like to be with, Dr. Avila claims that he provides the steps to then make them fall in love with you. And those oh. are his words. Make them oh. fall in love That's with aggressive. you. That's aggressive. I know. I Like what? It, it goes back to our conversation about uh, the love languages. Like, well, couldn't these powers be used for evil? The idea of, <laughs> well, I know this, the secret magic words that will unlock the love of your power. So the love types type. kind of become uh, like a love potion, like you're concocting something. Right. Hmm. There, there are certain behaviors that you can do to make a person attracted to yeah. you. I don't know. A villain could use this. Big, big claim on uh-huh. Dr. Avila's uh-huh. part. Like that really rung my skeptical alarm bells. Mm-hmm. But back to the Myers-Briggs types. The Myers-Briggs types are combinations of four letters, each letter representing a leaning of personality shaping dualities. Does that make sense? I think like, so. So there's four four letters, and all of the letters represent you could be this way or that way. Right. 
So it's a scale. Yeah, each one could be a scale, but the label doesn't represent the scale. It represents one or the other. All right, I, I get it. So the first letter is going to be either an E or an I. And the E stands for extroversion, and the I stands for introversion. And I always thought this was, like, where do you get your energy from? Do you get your energy from being alone, or do you get your energy from being out with people? But the way the Wikipedia page defines it, it's how you learn. So extroverted types learn more by interacting and talking with others, mm -hmm. while introverted types prefer to learn or learn better um, by processing the information That's alone. That's not too uh, dissimilar to what you were just saying, though, you, the way you interpreted it before the Wikipedia entry. Yeah, I guess, I guess. So I prefer, like, and uh, so I, as an introvert, mm. prefer to process my thoughts privately rather than bouncing off ideas off of another person. Uh, that's a fact. And that is a fact, <laughs> which you bump up against all the time during this podcast. Today, in fact. Okay, anyway, um, a little peek behind the veil. <laughs> um, the next letter is going to be either an S or an I. So S stands for sensing, and the I stands for intuition. And these letters represent what people prefer to put their attentions on. So sensing is like um, more to do with what you actually see. Like this table, it has three chairs. The wall is white. Like, you know, it just, it deals with what is present. While intuition, intuitive people prefer to um, think in the abstract. I walk into this room, it makes me feel comfortable at home. Like, um, I don't like going to that particular Panera because it makes me feel squidgy. Mm -hmm. Like that that kind of thing. Um, the third letter is either T or F, thinking or feeling. And this represents how a person prefers to make their decisions. So a thinking person would rather make a decision based on data. Like, um, what should I have to eat today? Well... I've got these ingredients in the fridge, so here are my options. While um, a feeling person will go like, well, what do I feel like for lunch today? I think I feel like uh, cooking what, I, some, what something I have from home. Or Fried bologna. Going out. Yeah, it's like the idea of like, well, I'd rather address my emotional need versus my physical need for mm -hmm. nutrition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's and the Brad's last take. What? That's Brad's take. Mm-hmm. Well... Ooh, that's a spoiler because we're going to talk about that later. Anyway, um, the last letter is judging or perceiving. And the fourth, this fourth letter represents how a person regards complexity. So judging types see things as more structured and more black and white, while a perceiving person tends to think that everything is relative and everything is on a scale. So while a judging person might say, well, everybody who's driving over 65 miles an hour on this road should get a ticket mm -hmm. because that's, that's what the structure is, somebody who is perceiving goes, well, what are the circumstances that person is driving over the speed limit? Do they really have to pee? Is somebody delivering a baby? Like, I need to know the circumstances <laughs> so that within the squidgy, timey-wimey, whatever, that we all exist, everything deserves being addressed 
where it is. Does that make sense? Yes, that it sense? makes total sense. Okay, good. I think the Myers-Briggs system would do well in a jury courtroom situation. If you're on Law & Order, you want to know what the, uh, the, the Myers-Briggs of all the jurors are. Oh, yeah. No, that's definitely true. I had no idea where you were going with sorry, that. Sorry, sorry. I think that uh, <laughs> I would definitely prefer, like, if I committed a small crime, uh-huh. I'd rather have a perceiver on the bench than a judger. Agreed, agreed. <laughs> Is that what you call it when the, on the judge, yes, the judge's bench. Yeah, the judge's bench. Yeah. Or the jury's box. Yeah. So, like we said, I just retook the, the Myers-Briggs test. Brad has taken the Myers-Briggs test for the first time in memory, though Brad's dad insisted he took it in high school. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with dad. You know, my high school memory is terrible. And your dad actually told me the results that you got way back then. Yeah, well, he records and documents, like, every movement I've ever made. Yeah, only child. Um, <laughs> True. Now, we took this test on 16personalities.com. 16 is written with the Arabic numerals. 16personalities.com. That this isn't the official Myers-Briggs test. For the official Myers-Briggs test, uh, you have to pay money. We're cheap. And we're we're a small podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but one thing I find interesting about the 16 personalities version is that there's another letter. Like oh yeah. They've added a whole new letter. So either so you get the regular four letters, and one is an A, and one is a T for the last letter for the fifth letter. And uh, I forget what the A stands for. The T stands for turbulent. Oh. And I got 100% turbulent. I'm like, that sounds, that sounds accurate. <laughs> um, so we're just going to read the results straight off of the website. Drum roll. And drum roll. So I, again, got an INFP. And on 16 personalities, that, they call that the mediator Ooh. personality. Mediator personalities are true idealists, always looking for the hint of good, even in the worst of people and events, searching for ways to make things better. While they may be perceived as calm, reserved, or even shy, mediators have an inner flame and passion that can truly shine. I've never been perceived as a calm person. (laughs) But anyway, keep going. Compromising just 4% of the population, the risk of feeling misunderstood is unfortunately high for the mediator personality type. Mm. And when they find like-minded people to spend their time with, the harmony they feel will be a fountain of joy and inspiration. Okay. Isn't that nice? That sounds good. That sounds pretty accurate. Um, I am. I do tend to be an idealist. And when I feel like things are unjust... Like, it does really rattle my cage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know where the calm, reserved thing comes comes out. I do know that there are definite situations when I am shy, and that is part of my introverted nature. But anyway, so that is me. Okay. I am a mediator. So here is Brad's personality. I'm going to make him read it. Oh, yay. Yay. So I got the ENFP type, which is a campaigner personality. And what it says here is that the campaigner personality is a true free spirit. They are often the life of the party, but unlike types in the explorer role group, campaigners are less interested in the sheer excitement and pleasure of the moment than they are in enjoying the social and emotional connections they make with others. Charming, independent, energetic, and compassionate, the 7% of the population that they comprise can certainly be felt in any crowd. 
Yeah, so Brad is just the extroverted version of me. Yeah. So he's an ENFP. I'm an INFP. Actually, right after I took the test the first time, um, Brad and I had a long conversation in the car, and I guessed that he would turn out to be an ENFP, and we read over the entire ENFP. Like, if if you take the 16 personalities, they there are pages and pages about your personality. They go into what careers would be suitable, what relationships would be suitable, and we, we read through that, and um, and yeah, to me, that really does sound like Brad to me. Now I'm I, the life of the party? I've never felt like I've been the life of the party. You are always the life of the party. Brad loves in a group, particularly if it's a nerdy group, Brad loves to hold court. Oh, I love to interrupt people. <laughs> <laughs> and I really think that the independent, energetic, compassionate, I think that those are three words that really describe you as a person. I am not offended by any of those labels. <laughs> <laughs> so when I asked your dad what the results you got in high school, he said you got an INFP. Right. So in high school, we got the same result. Yeah. And Greg, your dad, got XNFP. So X is like smack in the middle, which I, I'm guessing that you're also pretty close to smack in the middle. And your mom also got INFP. Uh -huh. And I gave the same test to my sister. She also got INFP. Uh -huh. I gave it to my brother. He also got <laughs> INFP. And like one of the first things in like my little paragraph, like they give you 4% of the population. And yet I'm completely surrounded by INFPs. Everybody's just making poor decisions based on no data and just feelings. But whereas you feel like you have stayed in your personality type since high school, I definitely acknowledge that there was a change in my introversion as an only child with like three friends in high school to graduating from college, joining the workforce, uh, really getting into retail management. That's when I I blossomed, <laughs> as my dad might say. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I feel like I did make a change from being an introvert to an extrovert. And I've definitely tried in certain situations to um, approach things with a more data-centered result. Uh -huh. And I've tried to kind of compensate on how I tend to make decisions based on my feelings and my perception. But really, I'm only in love with data if it resonates with how I actually feel. So I don't know. I guess it's good that it's not up to me to cure cancer or get us to the moon <laughs> or anything. <laughs> um, so I thought the best way to dip into this love type system as we kick off couples counseling for Peter Parker and Mary Jane with Parallel Lives is that we try to determine what Myers-Briggs type both Peter and MJ are. And then over the next couple of weeks, we can determine if Dr. Avila would find their love types compatible and what might be some good techniques to keep their bond strong. All right, let's do this. Let's get into it. So off air, Lisa and I discussed that we were only going to talk about the main continuity, the Marvel 616 universe. So as much as we love Ultimate Spider-Man and that particular Peter Parker and Mary Jane, 
we're not going to bring them into this month of conversations. But who's to say whether we'll talk about them in the future? We probably will. We probably will. Uh, but for now, we're talking about the Peter Parker and Mary Jane that were introduced in Amazing Fantasy and Amazing Spider-Man back in the 60s. But where we're going to jump in is Parallel Lives, an original graphic novel written by Jerry Conway and illustrated by Alex Soviuk. This was published in May of 1989, and a big reason for its existence is because of the pushback that occurred within the fan community when Peter Parker and Mary Jane were married two years earlier in Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21. Parallel Lives is basically a see, I told you so to the fans. They were always meant to be in love because they were always in love from the very beginning. It's a major retcon. So where was all this beef coming from? What were the fan complaints? Well, because, you know, Gwen Stacy was his true love originally. Oh, you know, right. he had dated around with Betty Brant and Liz Allen, and then he was with Gwen Stacy, and then Gwen Stacy died as a result of the conflict between Peter Parker and Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin. And Mary Jane was this freewheeling, loving, hippie model spirit, and they just didn't feel like they belonged, that they connected, that they were true. True. Ah. You know, it was okay to be a date, but not married. And and they didn't want Peter Parker to be married. He was a swinging bachelor because, again, all those ladies have already passed through his door. But that's normal. Everybody, like most people, date around before they settle down with the one that they're rounding up to the number one. That's true. Not in my case. I was pretty much a lone bachelor until you came around, Lisa. That's that's right, but they didn't write a comic book about you. No, no, they, no, they no, did not. No, okay. they did not. Very um, sad comic book that would be. A Daniel Klaus comic book. <laughs> <laughs> that is something that is weird about Parallel Lives, is it, that it's essentially just like a recap of everything that's happened between Peter Parker and Mary Jane up to this point. It's what's weird about it, but it's also what's wonderful about it, right? Because it gets to revisit the face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot, but not from Parker's perspective, but from Mary Jane's perspective. Uh -huh. And you get to see all these moments in Parker's life happening that we knew through the comic books, but now also getting the parallel story of Mary Jane. And, and it's all leading to their marriage and their life afterwards. The biggest beef that I had with this book was the codification of exactly when Mary Jane figured out that Peter Parker was Spider-Man. Yeah, the night he donned the costume for revenge. Right, because that conflicted with my whole idea of Mary Jane. Like, the charm of Mary Jane was that she was the girl next door and she fell in love with Peter Parker, the person before she fell in love with Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. So, like, the Now idea, that's all changed. The, the idea of Mary Jane knowing that Peter Parker was Spider-Man the whole time, in my mind, under, undermined the validity of their relationship because he was a celebrity. So what's interesting is when Parallel Lives comes out, it was a major retcon for that reason, and it had people who were even more mad. You know, not only did you ruin Parker with this bloody marriage, but now you are discounting issues upon issues of continuity that built up to that marriage. And, you know, one of your favorite writers, Dan Slott, yes. who would go on to write Amazing Spider-Man for a decade plus, I think, he actually wrote on a comic book resources Spider-Man forum. Can I, can I just read you his, what his, his actual complaint was? In Amazing Spider-Man number 258, page three, panel two, when the black cat 
jumps in through the window. MJ whispers in shock, it's true. It's all true. She clearly had suspicions that Peter was Spider-Man, but she didn't know for sure. That story came out in 1984, five years before Parallel Lives. In the context of dialogue, MJ says in 258, it's clear that her previous exit from the book many issues earlier was because she had been figuring out that Pete was Spider-Man and she couldn't take it anymore. That flies in the face of the retroactive revelation in Parallel Lives that MJ knew Pete was Spider-Man since Amazing Fantasy number 15 before they'd even met. Right. You know, that infuriated Dan Slott the way it seems to really be bothering you. And I love the fact that one of your favorite comic book writers, Dan Slott, the writer of Silver Surfer, uh, along with Michael Allred, has the exact line of thinking as you do about this revelation. I don't think I'm as strongly opposed to Mary Jane having known from the moment, especially how it's presented in Parallel Lives. I think that Jerry Conway has a lot of uh, fun with this idea. And I think it gives a lot of um, context to who Mary Jane is as a character and why she might fall for this dweeby guy, Peter Parker, because she is also infatuated with the mask. But the whole charm of Mary Jane as an idea is that she's a super hot babe, but Peter Parker's true self was so attractive and beautiful that she could see past the nerdiness. Yeah, the beauty and the beast or beauty and the dweeb kind exactly. of scenario. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that 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 says nay here anyway. But I want to come back to that uh, retcon at the end of our conversation. Okay. Uh, so we've kind of already told you what Parallel Lives is, but can I just uh, jump in and deliver the Goodreads paragraph of the plot synopsis of the book? Sure. So this is what Goodreads has to say. When exactly did Mary Jane Watson discover that Peter Parker was Spider-Man? This and many more questions about the relationship are answered in a special story that recounts the lives of Peter Parker and Mary Jane and how they grew to love each other. And just in case you're wondering where Spider-Man is in the soap opera, he's battling Dr. Octopus. So yeah, okay. We, we've basically surmised that already, that Parallel Lives is this look back this kind of flashback story where it revels in the the shadows of the stuff we already know and yeah it also retcons some of the dr octopus storyline and and it traces his origin and his rage towards peter parker as the photographer of spider-man and how he's going to get his revenge on spider-man by going after parker and mj and aunt may and he creates actually he Dr. Octopus acts as like a third parallel life in, yeah. in my estimation. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I just, I like the structure a lot of what Conway and Saviuk do here. And I also just really adore Saviuk's um, renderings of those classic panels like Face It, Tiger, You Just Hit the Jackpot. John Romita originally wrote that in Amazing Spider-Man 42, and it was just this tiny little panel at the end of the issue. And here, Alex Seviuk, now that that, that moment has become this massive moment in Spider-Man mythology, he gets to have a whole splash page of Face It, Tiger, You Just Hit the Jackpot. And I think that is just really thrilling and very geeky and you know, f fanboyish, and yeah, yeah, I like it. Even with my character quibbles about who, to me, S S 
Spider-Man and Mary Jane really are. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun reading this book, and I'm oh, excited about discussing it with you. I was getting a little defensive, Lisa. I know. I felt that. <laughs> I wanted to ease your, your fee-fees. All right. So where would you like to start with this comic book? I think we should just go ahead and start with the first two pages where we see Peter as a baby being left with Uncle Ben and Aunt May while her, while his parents go on this secret, secret mission. government mission from which they will never return. But we also see Mary Jane as a baby and her father is a raging writer yeah. who can't... Who, who, who just doesn't understand why his wife can't keep the two kids quiet. He's trying to clickety-clack on his typewriter. That's right. (laughs) And creativity is best in utter silence. Yeah, yeah. He's a real monster. He's a monster. He's yelling at Madeline, his wife. And we see Gail, who is Mary Jane's older sister. I'm guessing she's maybe six or seven. Yeah. Cradling the baby... Mary Jane and going like, Mary Jane, you know, we'll keep quiet, right? Everything's going to be okay. Right. So this idea of how the peace of the household kind of falls on Mary Jane. And those first two pages are mirrors of, the, of each other, right? So the final panel of page one is a close-up shot of Peter Parker as a baby. And the final panel of page two is a close-up shot of Mary Jane as a baby. And then when we turn the page... We get to see them both as young teenagers. I think Peter is 13 at the time and Mary Jane's a year older, 14. Yeah. And it's at this age where they have developed coping mechanisms that will inform how they were are going to be for the rest of this book and presumably for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. So in Peter's narration, He says that for most of his childhood, I was sure that their leaving, his parents leaving him, had something to do with me. Yeah, he was a bad baby, so he was rejected. If only I'd been good enough, they wouldn't have gone away. Mm -hmm. So Peter has this overwhelming sense of responsibility over people being in his life. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. I if I am a certain way then I will receive love. Yeah, good catch. Yeah, yeah, This goes back to attachment theory, which we talked about a lot last month. And we see the result of that stress, that stress of wanting to be the best person to keep the people he loves in his life. He has just gotten his report card. Aunt May is like, yay, it's straight A's. And Peter's like, yeah, but not in phys ed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at him like he's he's laboring intensely over those leaves. Yeah. If he fails at raking those leaves, he will lose the love of his aunt and uncle. Right. He's helping Uncle Ben, and mm-hmm. that's very important to him. And then Aunt May tries to say, tries to articulate, if your parents were still here, they would be so <laughs> proud of you. And Uncle Ben cuts her off and gives her the meanest look. <laughs> like, don't bring up, don't bring up Peter's parents. Yeah. And I love this panel because it shows that, like, in Spider-Man mythology, like, Uncle Ben is, like, the patron saint. 
And in this panel, just one panel, we go, well, Uncle Ben ain't perfect. <laughs> uh, Alex Seviuk, again, he's capturing the style of Steve Ditko and doing his own little twist on it. And I mean, it's like, look at those Parker eyes in that panel that you're talking about. He looks so crestfallen. He looks like such a weak little child who needs protecting. Yeah. On the other side, MJ's parents have split up. And Gail and MJ have gone to stay with cool Aunt Anna, who Mary Jane feels like her Aunt Anna is the only one who loves her mm-hmm. for her. For her. For who she is. Yeah. She doesn't have to worry about breaking uh, Aunt Anna. And Aunt Anna lives across the street from Aunt May. That's right. You say Anna, I say Anna. Yeah. Tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> um, But Mary Jane catches, uh, she clocks Peter Parker, another teenage boy, across the street, raking leaves. And she's like, oh, he looks cute, kind of nerdy, whatever. But then her sister Gail is like, hey, MJ, everybody's getting ready for dinner. Why don't you help the family, you know, get the table set? And she's like, nope, my nails are wet. I can't help. I'm so sorry. And Gail is like, everything's a joke to you. When are you going to get serious? And so this is the battle that Mary Jane is struggling with. Her family is hurting. Her family is aching. And time with her family is... Painful. Painful. It's triggering to her. It reminds her that her life is falling apart. Yeah, her life began in a fight, right? She was born between the conflict of mom and dad, and dad's gone. And, you know, she... She cannot deal with tension and anger and she can't deal with negative energy. So she forces herself to be positive 100% of the time, even if it's total BS. And that's where her mask uh, comes up. You know, the wet nails, that's a mask. Yeah, but her family perceives this as, Mary Jane, you're self-centered. You do not, you're not being of service to the family unit. And all Mary Jane wants to do is extradite herself from the family unit. Right. And um, Madeline, MJ's mom, goes to Anna and goes like, do you think, do you think Gail's right? Do you think that um, MJ is a self-centered monster? And Anna replies, I think that you're lucky to have a daughter so full of life, Madeline. So we started talking about this panel of Anna being the person who see, like, Anna appreciate unconditional love mm-hmm. from from Anna, but at the same time, Anna is Anna is still blocked from seeing the true MJ because right. we learned that this, like, even though she is so bubbly on the outside, uh, sh- there there is something that's going on on the inside that because she will not let people. Every see. sixth panel is MJ crying. Yeah, <laughs> like, alone know. in a corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- th- this, you know. She shows the smile to friends and family and strangers, but when she's in a room alone, there's a she's tear sleeping. in her eye. Yeah. 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 We turn the page. Peter Parker, bit by a radioactive spider. One thing that I find really interesting. Another awesome splash page to yeah. a moment in Amazing Fantasy 15, which was just a panel. I love the coloring on oh, this page. Gorgeous. It's Give me a golden. Mondo print. He's in the lab. And there's like a some kind of crazy Tesla coil situation going on. And the, the spider is on his hand. He looks shocked. Everybody in the classroom looks shocked. Um, 
But what I find interesting about this particular telling of the radioactive spider is that for him, from the very first experience of the change in his body, he is rejoicing. He loves the fact that now he has these powers. In the narration, he says, up until that point, I was like some of the other kids my age, lonely and lost, a kind of outcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Flash Thompson, his bully, is this looming character in his mind where, like, there's part of him that wishes he could be athletic like Flash Thompson. And now he can. Exactly. So... So the reaction to, hey, I can scale a wall, is pure joy and relief. If those kids in school, the ones who call me a bookworm like Flash Thompson, could see me now. Yeah, and it immediately becomes a point of, well, how can I take advantage of this new power? And what Parallel Lives does, which previous tellings of the origin do not, is it gives a lot of time to the pre-Uncle Ben murder sequence of events. It seems like at least weeks, maybe months occur from the point he gets bit to the point he uh, wrestles Crusher Hogan to the point where he starts talking- Being a superhero vigilante. Well, well yeah, and he's, he's talking to People Magazine and he's going on television shows and he's becoming a celebrity. So, you know, Spider-Man in Parallel Lives is already this thing, is already this- uh, 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 icon before he becomes a superhero. What I don't understand is he's not he's not a superhero. No, before he's wrestling people. I yeah, guess. Yeah, I guess he's just a wrestler. He's I have doing no idea. tricks on Carson. Who knows? I like, don't know. Like it's a little vague as to why People Magazine's excited to talk to the Spider Man, but it's happening. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Mary Jane. She's fourteen. And she's and her family has now moved in with her mother's cousin Frank Brown right. in Pittsburgh. So now she doesn't even go to the same high school as yeah, Peter separate. Parker. And um, she at school has gotten herself a bit of a reputation. The boys love her. She's getting dates right and left. But the girls are talking about her behind her back and calling her a flirt and a <laughs> hussy. And in her narration, MJ says, everybody thought I was such a swinger. Mary Jane Watson, the party animal, not a thought in her head, a heart full of fun. So she feels like everybody sees her as this ditz. Yeah. And she's not. She's in so much pain. Yeah. She goes on to say, I had to laugh because... I knew if I started crying, I would never be able to stop. Right. So let's get to the murder, right? He's, uh, you know, battling uh, Crusher Hogan. He destroys Crusher Hogan. And this uh, burglar passes by, this guy who robbed the box office, and a cop's chasing the, the guy. You've seen the scene in the movies. You've seen it in Amazing Fantasy 15. Peter Parker goes, hey, it's not my problem. The guy gets away. Cop's like, well, you know, what are you doing? And, and Peter Parker says, you know, I'm living for me. If it's not dealing with the positive outcome for this guy, myself, then I don't care. And what happens? That guy goes on to kill Uncle Ben in some sort of home invasion sequence. 
Peter Parker loses his mind, fills with rage, throws the costume on, jumps out the window. He's seen by Mary Jane. Mary Jane immediately knows that Peter Parker is the Spider-Man that's been on TV and been interviewed by People Magazine. And he goes after the burglar, captures the burglar, discovers that it's the same guy that he let go at the Crusher Hogan event, and that he is in fact responsible for his uncle's death. And when Peter is battling that burglar and demasks him, he's actually affirming his childhood fear. He goes, mm. it was my fault that yeah. my parents yeah, yeah. left me as an infant. Now, it is my fault that Uncle Ben is no longer alive because I never stopped this burglar. That's what makes Spider-Man as a hero more interesting than a lot of other comic book characters is the shame. That it's not, uh, he's, he's not motivated by vengeance or justice. He's motivated by guilt and shame for being the cause of such tragedy in his own life. And the best Spider-Man comics are the ones that continue the struggle inside Peter of that shame. You know, he can never let that go. And the moment he does, he sort of stops being Spider-Man. But what bugs me is that this incident is affirming something that was on its face not true. It was not his fault that his parents left. No, that's right. But it is his fault. Like, he could have prevented his uncle's death if he hadn't been selfish in the moment at the Crusher Hogan match. Now, Mary Jane has a differing opinion to what you just said. I and know. Which we find out at the end of, like, we see what Mary Jane's approach to, to what happened yeah, is at yeah. the end of this Things book. happen, you can't control the world. But I think that it's interesting that in every, in all of the cinematic iterations, the the phrase great power come from great power comes great responsibility was something that un uncle ben taught him right but in the one conversation that uncle ben had like that we see uncle ben have with peter parker his message was not with great power comes great responsibility his message was live life to the fullest right life is fleeting and so you should be trying to experience everything. Well, with great power comes great responsibility was not originally attributed to Uncle Ben in Amazing Fantasy 15. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it's a direct expression from Stan the Man Lee and the original full quote, which appears in the last couple of panels of Amazing Fantasy 15 is with great power, the, there must also come great responsibility. And later comics would retcon the phrase to make it one of Uncle Ben's go-to lessons. And Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley's Ultimate Spider-Man, as well as the Sam Raimi film, would actually take the phrase and put it in conversation between Uncle Ben and Peter before his murder. After... Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse won its Oscar for Best Animated Film. I was actually lucky enough to interview Bendis for Film School Rejects, and we spent a large portion of that conversation discussing this phrase. And he felt that the best Spider-Man stories were the ones that contributed to the struggle between great power and great responsibility. And I'm inclined with to agree with him. And if you look at the most recent Spider-Man Far From Home, even though Uncle Ben is really not even been mentioned in either Homecoming or its sequel, uh, that conversation is still being played out in an interesting and compelling way. But I think there is something, like where that idea comes from 
contextually is so important within that iteration of Spider-Man's narrative. Right. Because if so they, if we're talking about the Parallel Lives one, where it comes is... Right. So yeah. in the original, it was coming from Stan Lee. It was coming from the omnipotent narrator. Right. In all of the movie iterations... Uncle Ben. It came from Uncle Ben. But in Parallel Lives, it comes from Peter Parker's shame. Yeah. So that brings a whole new connotation to what... With great power comes great responsibility so, comes from. Uh, what is exactly the context in which that phrase appears in this book? It comes, oh, another great splash page. Here is Spider-Man and Craven the Hunter. So good. And uh, the narration says, after Uncle Ben died, everything changed. I'd learned a bitter lesson. With great power comes great responsibility. Pretty soon, it seemed every time I turned around, I was fighting a su- supervillain with a rotten attitude and a corny name. So what you're saying here is that the context of Parallel Lives puts kind of a negative spin on with great power comes great responsibility. Right. A negative spin (laughs) that Mary Jane addresses at the end of this book. And challenges. And challenges. I think in a way that's that's very balancing. I had not picked that up. That's cool. Yeah. And, and, And it's almost perverse. Yeah, I found it very like I found it very unsettling. Yeah. Huh, 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 huh. I would like to double back though. Okay. A little bit to what I referred to in my notes as the if only they knew moments. Mm. So on the left-hand side, we see another panel of Mary Jane crying because she just found out that uh, that the Spider-Man she's been crushing on on TV happens to be the boy next door, Peter Parker. And she doesn't know how to categorize that information. Mm-hmm. Like this outgoing person in a mask, now I see who's behind the mask and what do I do with that? And so she has gone to Aunt Anna's and she, oh, well, she's left Aunt Anna's and she's gone to a party, but she's standing outside the party just crying to herself. And somebody in the party is like, hey, MJ, what's going on? Everybody's asking about you. And she sucks up her tears immediately and turns around and it was like, uh, what could possibly be wrong with me? Like, I, you know, get serious. I am the party animal. I am the best. Exactly. I am the jackpot. And then we see her in this Absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's so 80s good. 80s style dress. I love that her signature thing are, is like cowboy boots. Yeah, Like yeah. heeled cowboy so boots. So she's like dancing and behind her is her own profile beaming. And it's like this giant lie that she is just projecting onto the disco floor. And in the bottom corner, it says, if only they knew. Mm-hmm. On the right hand side, we see Peter Parker and Spider-Man, and that page starts, if only they knew, every newspaper had me on the front page, People Magazine was planning a cover story, he's receiving all of these accolades and money and attention, and, you know, Maxi, his manager, is like, you're going to make a six-figure income. (laughs) Um, But even while all of that was happening... Peter Piker did not feel right. Mm-hmm. And um, he says, I knew it couldn't last. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because again, he's a, a boy of doubt. Mm-hmm. 
So it didn't. Then after that panel is when Uncle, Uncle Ben Ben's is murdered. shot. We have the great power comes great responsibility moment. And yeah. And then we get to our first interlude with Otto Octavius. Yeah, and if I was going to say anything really negative about Parallel Lives is that the Dr. Octopus stuff is the least interesting aspect of the book. I agree with that, but there is one thing that I find intriguing from a storytelling standpoint. So when Otto Octavius experiences his transformation and he is subjected Uh, to radiation and his body is fused with his mechanical arms. He has a very similar reaction to Peter Parker of like relief and going like, finally, finally I can show that. Yeah. He loves it too. Yeah. They both radiation (laughs) so far, a hundred percent great up to this. Otto has no shame. So I think this is a good time to pause and go like, what do we think? Where do we feel like Peter Parker and Mary Jane are falling within the realm of the Myers-Briggs type indicator test. All right, let's try this out. I'm, I'm guessing you have a, a firm grip on how to do this. I'm not exactly sure I could do it in this moment. Okay, well, let's just go um, category by category. So the first one is introverted, extroverted. Uh-huh. I think that's an easy yeah, one. Yeah. Mary Jane is definitely an extroverted person. She's going out to restore herself, to get her energy back. Well, and okay, so Peter Parker, you're going to say, is an introvert, which Mm -hmm. is certainly true pre-spider bite, but don't you think the confidence of the radioactive spider allows him to become a bit more of an extrovert? And, and and he starts dating a whole bunch of girls after the spider bike. I think after the spider bike, he, he does spider bite. I said spider bike. That would be amazing. I mean, there is a spider mobile. Oh, cool. Um, after the spider bite, he's definitely more confident. Mm-hmm. But I do think that he needs time to retreat back into himself. Because I am an introvert as well. But I do go on podcasts and I completely overshare. I did go to school for music. And Mm -hmm, part mm -hmm. of that is, you know, I do desire to stand in front of people and present myself, present my art, but I definitely do definitely need to go back into myself to restore. Okay. Where I think that Mary Jane goes out to, to, to be restored, Peter Parker and myself. And she draws energy from the party. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll go with that. What about intuitive versus sensing? Uh, hmm. That's... I, to me, I feel like Mary Jane is intuitive. She's definitely acting on her feelings. And and I see this even more as the book continues. Okay. All right. I, I'm going to go with you. It seems like you know the answers already. I know. I'm just telling you what I think. I'm right. just, just asking you questions don't... to tell you what I think. Yeah. Just, what, just tell me what you think. <laughs> uh, I think... Um, Peter Parker is sensing, and I'm just basing that on his interest in the sciences. So the, the fact that he, um, is science leaning go tells me like he wants to engage with the data. He wants to engage with the physical realm. I think with Peter Parker, the next category feeling versus thinking, I could go kind of either way Mm -hmm. because his, um, deciding to become a superhero is definitely based on his feelings, his feelings to do with Uncle Ben. But he does like to plan. He is a planner. Where I feel like 
Mary Jane is definitely feeling yeah. overthinking. And he's constructed all these in- incredible gadgets. You know, he sews the Spider-Man costume. He builds yeah, the he, web fluids and the shooters. He's presenting the world with data about yeah. why he is cool. And then the last one, perceptive versus judging. I think to be a superhero to a certain degree, you do have to be judging because you have to decide is a person a villain or not is, are these actions um, honorable or not where I think that Mary Jane helps give Peter Parker at the end of this book, some perspective to help him see morality on more of a sliding scale. Mm, Yeah. Agreed. So, just to sum up all of the brilliant things I just said, yes, I yes. feel like Peter Parker is an I S F or T J, and Mary Jane is like you, an E N F P. I'm in good company. Yeah, you are. And I'll be curious to see how that evolves or if it doesn't evolve with the story arcs that we pick over the next three weeks. Yeah. And just for funsies, I think that Otto Octavius (laughs) (laughs) is a big time I-S-T-J. Do you have enough information in Parallel Lives to say that? Yes. Okay. Confidence. Lisa's a, a woman of confidence. You've already it, said you don't want to go blow by blow with that's Otto true, Octavius. That's true. That's true. That's true. Okay. So I that's guess a whole other podcast. Our, our listeners can go over those pages if they want to see <laughs> if they can <laughs> agree or disagree with me. But that's what I think. All right. So what's interesting uh, going forward you know, to wrap up Parallel Lives uh, as an arc is that it jumps quite a bit into the future. It skips over the early courting of Peter Parker and Mary Jane and goes right to marriage. We don't see the first kiss. We see the wedding day. Well, we do see a little bit of their early courtship, or at least the avoiding of that early courtship of Aunt May and Aunt Anna trying to bring their little nibblings together. And there's some waffling between the two, but that waffling continues right to the ceremony on the big day. They're waffling. They're, be- they're they're trying to figure it out right before they say, I do. Yeah, and M- Mary Jane's waffling is due to her previous damage. She saw, like, her dad was verbally abusive. Her Frank. uncle Frank, whatever yeah. his their relationship is, like, he was abusive. He saw Gail, her sister's, And Gail and Timmy's marriage fall apart. That's a whole nother podcast there too. (laughs) And so she feels like, well, marriage is this thing that changes men into monsters. Well, that all men she knows have been monsters to some degree or another. Right. Peter's waffling is like, well, I'm finally hot and I want to sow my oats. (laughs) I think that's what it comes down to for him. Yeah, yeah. And earlier on in the book, we see how his uh, juggling of Liz Allen and Betty Brant erupts and explodes in his face. You know, he really did enjoy, you know, um, sowing those seeds. But for him during that time, I feel like the love of his life was Aunt May because Mm. she he was carrying so much guilt over what happened to Uncle Ben that he threw all of his energy into Aunt May. 
And then she ended up getting really sick because apparently at some point she needed a blood transfusion. And Peter Parker's like, use my blood, forgetting that his blood is just a little bit radioactive. And she did not become a superhero from that. She (laughs) uh, became a very sick old woman. And so, like, I think he was throwing a lot of his energy into maintaining, to absolving that sin. Mm -hmm. Of taking her husband away. And we get to the wedding day. We get to the final bit of waffling and it ends in an I do. And from that point forward, they're, they're practically a union or at least they're, uh, they're still kind of struggling in a relationship. And then Dr. Octopus attacks. Right. And that's when Mary Jane finally confronts Peter and says, you got to let go of all this uh, guilt that you're experiencing over Uncle Ben. You know, stuff happens. It's life. You got to move on. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I use the word interesting t- too much. Yeah, because it is interesting. Okay. <laughs> I was going to have you edit that out, but we're keeping it. It's who I am. <laughs> um, I am fascinated um, by MJ's response to Peter's response to the drone attack at the house. Uh, elaborate. Well, when the drone attack happens and Peter, you know, reads the note on the drone that says, like, Parker, give me (laughs) Spider-Man, MJ is like, don't, like, just don't go. Well, that's clearly where the danger is. Why don't you just avoid the danger? You don't have to do what the drone says. (laughs) And he, he responds to, like, but I have to. And he says, besides, it's my fault you are both in danger. So it goes back to that guilt of I am responsible for losing the people I love in my life. <laughs> and and her narration says, if his face was unmasked, I'd known what I'd seen, that look, that look I'd seen before. So The night she, that. Well, she looked at, she was afraid that Peter Parker felt trapped in his relationship with MJ. Like now I've got the burden of MJ uh, and Aunt May. I didn't read it that way. Interesting. Right? So like if we go back to Timmy and Gail's relationship. So she was mildly traumatized when she saw the look on Timmy's face yeah, after yeah, yeah, Gail yeah, yeah, yeah. had gotten pregnant. He looked scared. He's, and she's worried in that moment that he's got Timmy's face. Exactly. I had not thought of that. It, and so, yeah. So she was afraid that she was turning Peter Parker into in, Timmy. Exactly. Oh man. Ugh, brutal. <laughs> so then, you know, Peter battles Dr. Octopus and he returns and, oh, and in fighting Dr. Octopus, he goes like, well, if I continue to be Spider-Man, I'm going to continue endangering Aunt May and Mary Jane, the people that I love. And he decides that when he returns, he's going to break up with MJ. Right, because he can't keep putting her in this position. Exactly. And he made that decision on his own, independently. Yeah, which he does. Which he does because he is introverted. Right. Mm, he doesn't mm, bounce mm. his ideas. Mm. He makes a decision without bouncing them off of MJ, which is unfair because she is half of that marriage. But when she returns, he starts to do the, like, I can't continue to do this with you speech. And she stops him. Uh, in, uh, 
let me just read from the book. Um, so he starts going like, um, Doc Ock was right. It's always been my fault. With great power comes great responsibility. Over and over, I failed to meet that ideal. Uncle Ben, Aunt May, and now you, I've failed you all by bringing danger into your life, right? Your lives are at risk because of me. I can't take that risk anymore, MJ. That's why I've decided, dash, dash. And she goes, stop it right there. Peter, did you ever think your uncle might have been killed even if you had stopped that thief? And he's like, what? And she goes on to say, like, essentially... Squid happens to borrow. <laughs> I'm going back to Aquaman. I'm using uh, aquatic replacements for swear words. But she's like, life is happening all around us, and we're all making decisions. And so what Jerry Conway is doing here is he's justifying the marriage to say. They balance each other. They balance each other. And for Peter Parker to ever move beyond the kid who is suffering the the responsibility of with great power comes great responsibility. He needs Mary Jane in his life. Exactly. She says, we take responsibility for our lives because it's right, not because we can predict the outcome. We take risks because that's how we grow. I'm taking the risk as Mary Jane of being your spouse because I feel like that is where we can grow together as a couple. I took a risk the day I decided to meet you because she knew he was Spider-Man the whole time. <laughs> like I took a risk going like, okay, I'll go out on a blind date with Spider-Man. I chose today over yesterday and left tomorrow to tomorrow. So she's saying like, live in the present. And I'm so glad I did. Can't you do the same? And he's like, yes. What's interesting is that from this point forward in the comic books with Peter and Mary Jane together, that little boy with his shame, um, you know, he he's not struggling with that moment as much going forward. And I think that's a, a problem for some fans and for creators like Joe Quesada, who eventually wanted to break apart the relationship of Peter Parker and Mary Jane to get him back to that early 20s where he is still struggling with that night uh, of revenge. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, so like when I think back to when I was reading the comics in the 90s and they were a cohesive couple, what was interesting about Spider-Man was not the origin story. It was the day-to-day Monster of the Week adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. That's, it's just an interesting place to take a character to wrap up, to put a bow on that pain. Yeah. And you started, we started this conversation saying like, with great power comes great responsibility is essential to the character of Spider-Man. He's always dealing with that, the weight of that responsibility, but if Mary, Mary Jane, Jane absolves yeah. his responsibility and saying like, you know, you can't control everything. You can only make, you can only do what's right. So. And th- effectively neuters the concept. Exactly. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. I do like the idea of opposites attract as a narrative thing. Like they're, they're yin and yang. They kind of complete each other, but. To me, like in in real life, the fact that you and I, aside from you being a little bit more extroverted and me being a little bit more introverted, we bond over 
the same stuff. Uh, over how similar we are. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. feel like if you were, let's let's take for example, um, our our percept our the last letter perceptive versus judging. Like if we really took hard stances on um, you going like, well, morality is black and white. This is wrong and this is right, and I'm going like. Well, you know, it's all just a spectrum and everybody's just doing the best that they can. That can cause a huge rift right. in our ideals. So so I'll be interested to continue reading what Dr. Avila says about opposites ver attract versus people, like-minded people want to bind mm -hmm, with mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like-minded people. Hmm, interesting. All right. So I think that brings us to the end of Parallel Lives. I think we're at a interesting um, stopping point on the relationship of Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson. Do you, do you feel like you have learned anything from Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson it, with the idea of Dr. Avila and the love types? Do, have you taken any romantic lessons from this book? Well, I, I um, dramatically, I really enjoy the conclusion of Mary Jane slapping Peter Parker across the face with, look, you got to get over this, you know, squid happens <laughs> and move on. Like if this was the only Spider-Man story, if this was the end of Spider-Man and or, or this end of Peter Parker and Mary Jane's story, I really appreciate that and how she does uh, complete his journey, his origin. And that there could be, a next chapter, theoretically. But in writing comics month to month, uh, that is maybe not as dramatically interesting, right? Uh, and, and so it's it's fascinating to me to get to the end of this, this story here between Peter Parker and Mary Jane and go, yeah, but that's not Spider-Man. Now, for my own relationship with you, uh, I don't think we're as dramatically apart uh, on the the spectrum of the Myers Briggs uh, ranking uh, personality types. Like you know, like we said in the beginning, you know, you're an introvert and I'm an extrovert, but pretty much everything else is is sort of cohesive. Uh, but it's hard not to see like the more Mary Jane aspects of my own personality where. I, I, there are moments where I, I I push through, you know, even even on this podcast when I'm getting frustrated or whatever, I, I raise my voice, I put some smile into my attitude, and I push on. Uh, I, I see a lot of, of MJ in myself. And I do see uh, the way our introvert-extrovert styles conflict, where in the taping of an episode, I like to stop a lot and gather my thoughts as opposed to you, you would much rather think your thoughts out loud, think your thoughts out loud, and bounce them off another person, and come to conclusions. Well, I'm doing it right now, right? Yeah. Like wh what I was just saying, I'm struggling with with this revelation. You know, the, the way that you've interpreted the ending of this book versus how I originally interpreted the ending of this book, and like where you have dropped this story off feels very like anti Spider Man as a as a concept, and that's. That's whoa. And then you're also asking me like, well, what do you see in yourself? And I'm, I'm still struggling with what I see <laughs> in Peter Parker and Mary Jane. But I do think that Mary Jane 
follows through on her like agreement of being his life partner by kind of resolving his anxieties. Like mm-hmm. part of yeah. being in a romantic relationship is that you have another person to bounce your toxic ideas off of. Well, Peter I- Parker is saying like I can't I can't love because when I love I am now responsible for your safety and I cannot handle that. That's his toxic uh-huh, idea. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But what I, but Lisa, this is what's happened over the course of this episode. Yeah. I began in the camp of Peter and MJ for life. That's how I was raised with the characters. They belong together. They should always be together. And I'm ending this with Paralives thinking that I that Joe Casada is right, that Mephisto does need to come around and magically erase this relationship because it's not healthy for the character. But I don't think that it takes away his motivation to be a superhero. I, don't know. I think that it more hmm. relieves that existential dread of loving. Cause she's he's saying, like, if I'm in a relationship with you, I am now responsible for the outcome of your of your life. And she's saying, let me relieve that burden. I'm taking responsibility for my own life. So do you not feel like this runs in the face of the concept of the character? In one way, I think that it does run in the face, but at the same time, like she hasn't said anything that would make him not Spider-Man. Hmm. Like with his great power, he he can do more and he is responsible for what he can reasonably do. But at the end of the day, squid happens. Okay. Okay. So maybe it's putting more of a positive spin on like I came like reading this book. I was like, oh, my God, great power comes from great power comes from great responsibility is this um, product of his shame. And it is something that doesn't bring joy to Spider-Man's heart. It's something that brings sorrow and grief and burden to Spider-Man's heart. And even when it came from uncle Ben, it was kind of that way though. And, but with MJ, that burden is lightened because she reminds Uh him, uh you can't do everything. And, and what happens after 1989 is it becomes an unburdened comic book in a lot of ways. The burden, it remains outside forces versus inside forces. He continues to keep his mask on. Mm-hmm. And that is as far as he can control protecting the safety of Mary Jane and Aunt May and the other people in his life. This is fascinating. I don't know. Like, to me, I, I'm interested to see where this storyline takes us with this new interpretation of yeah, with great power comes will great we carry this version of with great power comes great responsibility into our next comic book right we'll i think see. this turns him way more into a batman character ooh cuz batman also has a lot of well because what is well i mean it's different well batman has that like now i'm a symbol kind of thing spider-man doesn't really see him, himself as a symbol maybe I don't know. Maybe I just went off half-cocked right there. I think we'll have to talk like another 30, 40 minutes about that idea. I don't know if I can agree with you that this book 
Why do you think this book leaves him as a Batman character? Because he's coming from a place of darkness. Uh, As opposed from a... I don't know. I think think all versions of Spider-Man come from a place of darkness. All versions of Spider-Man come from a place of shame, not a a place of anger like Batman. Yeah, okay. I'm walking that back. I'm walking that back. (laughs) You you can edit that out if you want. I'm not gonna. Oh, man. All right. Woo! That... That was a lot. We have a lot of unresolved feelings. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love this episode. How are we going to carry on through to the next story? All right, so for next week, we're going to jump ahead to a listener recommendation, actually. Ooh. Um, when we first tweeted out that we would be covering Spider-Man and Mary Jane, we were given a lot of suggestions as to which storylines we must cover. Uh, At the top of the heap was a single-issue comic that I have still not read, The Sensational Spider-Man Annual Number 1 by Matt Fraction and Salvador Lorca. We like Matt Fraction. We love Matt Fraction. Hawkeye, oh my God. Mm -hmm, So good. Uh, Jack of At Spidey Memoir on Twitter said that this is without a doubt the most crucial comic book in their relationship. So hopefully it'll resolve all of these squidgy feelings we have. Yeah, I, I... I've flipped through the comic. It looks like a very warm, loving story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's, that. that yeah, it's going to help me process these emotions that you've, you've stirred in me, Lisa. Hopefully Mary Jane isn't just constantly crying behind her smile. Doesn't look like it. Doesn't mm-hmm. look like it. Uh, what is interesting about the Sensational Spider-Man Annual Number 1 is that it was released right before One More Day and the Destruction of their relationship. Oh, man. So, okay. But on top of all that goodness, Lisa, we're also flying to San Diego next week. That we are. Uh, We're going to do some time in LA before returning to our favorite place on Earth, the San Diego Comic-Con. And to aid in our, you know, our excitement and hopefully your excitement, we're going to do a special bonus episode, a How to Survive Comic-Con ep. And we'll be joined by a couple of special guests, Darren Smith and Brian Young, our pals over at the In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast. Really excited to get this show recorded. We've been going to Comic-Con as a group for the past nine years straight, and we've seen and done some wild things. It's a stressful vacation, but also a highlight every year. And hopefully some of those tips, Comic-Con tips, will be how to maintain a friend relationship through all of the Comic-Con selfish chaos. Because everybody has their own thing that they want to do. And yet we all want to be together and friends at the end. For sure. Okay, Brad, the time has come for us to swing into the horizon. Where can our listeners send the words of affirmation to you? Oh, Brad, I love this copy. <laughs> you like it? I do. You're having a lot of fun I'm with I'm having this, a little fun. Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork, uh, Lisa Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. And feel free to send us an email with questions, comments, qualments to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. And give us the gift of five stars and a sweet little review on iTunes. It really helps the show. So until next time, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.